we're, we've, we've kind of normally uh, called last week and this week a little mini Christmas series. We've obviously got our carol service next week. Um, we've had two Sundays last week and today uh, that are sort of building in a Christmassy way on the series we did thinking about the prophets in the Old Testament. Um, one of the things that's been going around in my mind this week because I've been thinking about this, when we think of Christmas we can't avoid the idea of God breaking into human history. What, what happened at Christmas time and that is that God himself entered the human race and broke into human history. And the word that's been going around, or the phrase that's been going around in my head this week, as I've been reflecting on this and wondering what to talk about this morning, has been the idea of God intervening in history. God intervening in history. This week I was, um, I was just thinking about this subject. I, I found uh, someone on the internet, someone in Wales, uh, who... I don't know why I said that in a surprising way, but uh, I think just because it was local, you know, it wasn't like in America or somewhere. But uh, this person posted a question on the internet that went like this. I don't know, how, how would you answer this? How can I demonstrate to my history professor that God intervenes in history? This person wasn't particularly doing a theology course. Uh, they were doing the history uh, course, this person had an essay to write, which obviously had a theological slant to it. But the question was, how can I demonstrate to my history professor that God intervenes in history? And there's a big problem with that question. I, I think in our modern culture, we, we do live in days where the idea of any supernatural intervention by God is really scorned and mocked and belittled and denied by our culture. One of the sad things about that is that our modern culture really loves and embraces and wants to uh, kind of have all the ethics of Christianity. Our whole culture in the West is based on a kind of Judeo-Christian ethic based on the Bible. But the idea in our modern culture, and you'll hear people saying this in the media and, and maybe personally, it's great that the Bible encourages good morals, uh, good morals, but no one really takes it literal anymore, do they? Is it not just a collection of myths and stories? They do have a kind of value, but they, this is not God's word. This is the work of human beings who are hopeful and uh, optimistic about human nature and so they superimpose kind of the idea of God on their human ideas there's no possibility even that God could intervene in human affairs we're told aren't we that we live in the age of science and reason and rationality and I think one of the underlying assumptions that people have is that there is nothing uh, there, there is no possibility of any sort of uh, God intervening supernaturally in human affairs. People say, don't they, I would believe it if God appeared to me or if I saw a miracle or maybe if I'd lived when Jesus lived and saw some of that stuff. But until that happens, there's no scientific proof, there's no evidence, so I'm just not going to go there. 
at all. Do those kind of comments ring bells with you? That's that's the way our culture uh, thinks, I think, isn't it? And the problem of Christmas is that the Bible is not just a code of ethics. It isn't just a moral system. The Bible tells us that God has intervened in human history. God himself has come into the human race in the person of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is very counter-cultural in terms of our modern culture. Now, last week, we were in 2 Peter, for those of you here. And the other way that we can think about Christmas and this time of year, and we did this in 2 Peter last week, chapter 1, we were thinking about the generosity of God. Uh, Peter says there, doesn't he, in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, God has given us everything we need for life and godliness. So we were thinking about Christmas being a time when God has given us something. This week I want to think a little more about the idea that God has intervened in history. And I I think as we move towards Christmas, those two things are good things to keep in mind. God is generous and he's intervened. And last week and this week kind of hang together uh, in that way. We finished off last week with this uh, simple little diagram. (laughs) I did think afterwards that it was a bit, it wasn't really a very smooth connection. Um, and we kind of ran out of time. But I want to come back to this diagram. And uh, it was relevant to 2 Peter uh, chapter 1. The reason I went there was because Peter there talks about the prophets predicting the birth of Jesus. And that's where we've been in the minor prophets. Uh, but I want to flesh out this diagram a little bit more for you this morning. And when when you see this diagram, I want you to think in terms of foundations. The whole of God's generosity to us, ultimately in Jesus, is, is, is built on a great foundation. And Peter says that that foundation is the Old Testament prophets who predicted the coming of the Messiah in great detail. And the other foundation is that the disciples or those first apostles... They witnessed and saw and heard the teaching, the miracles, the life, the death, the resurrection, the ascension of Jesus the Christ. So those two foundations are the foundation for our faith now. The prophets in the Old Testament, the apostles in the New Testament, their ministries authenticate each other in a way. And uh, as Jai's been going through his little series looking at the, the Bible with us, what, what that means is that the Bible that we hold in our hands is one coherent story. The Old Testament pointing to Jesus and the apostles uh, witnessing and, and encouraging and, and preaching uh, Christ and salvation in, in their culture. The, the issue with, with, with this is that when we think about God's intervention in history... The people who think that there is no possibility of God supernaturally intervening cannot dismiss the Bible so easily as they think they can. Because this um, foundation spreads over hundreds of years, grounded in history, thousands of years even, and the connection between what's predicted in the Old Testament and what's fulfilled in the New Testament only really makes sense 
if the ultimate author, the ultimate designer, the ultimate instigator of all of that activity is God himself. The Bible doesn't make sense unless God is the author of all of it. It's impossible for men in the Old Testament to predict that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem unless God inspired them to write those details. So this idea of supernatural intervention is seen in in the kind of way the Bible hangs together as one coherent story. I said to you last week, sometimes when I'm talking to people about Christianity, you know, people will say things like, well, you know, I've, I've heard that the Gospels were sort of written 300 years after Jesus and was it, did Constantine have something to do with it? And these, these Gospels were made up later on to put a slant on history so that Christianity would flourish. And maybe someone could come to the Old Testament and say, these Old Testament prophets, I mean, it's hard to know what they're talking about. Some of it's apocalyptic, some of it kind of talking about the future and maybe these guys just got lucky in what they wrote. It's very interesting that Peter deals with both those things. He says the prophets were not writing on the basis of human interpretation, but they wrote as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. What they wrote was God's word. And for himself, as a disciple and an apostle, and he says we didn't follow cleverly invented stories when we spoke to you about the coming and power of Jesus, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. So that, that combined sense of the prophets and the, and the witnesses, the apostles, giving this great foundation for the gospel is really crucial. God has intervened in history and ultimately that points to the person of Jesus coming into the world at first Christmas. <clears throat> I just want to spend some time this morning really I suppose just proving and establishing this and Ben read to us uh, from Luke's Gospel um, and maybe you could turn there for us uh, this, this uh, foundation I want to establish with you that Jesus himself established his own identity in exactly this way What did Jesus appeal to when he spoke to his disciples? Well, he appealed to the Old Testament prophets that we've been looking at over the last five or six weeks. And I want to uh, show you that. If you can be in the uh, Luke's Gospel, the last page of Luke. I just want to look at two uh, points here. The road to Emmaus, you'll be familiar with, I'm sure. It's an amazing story how um, these two people were were leaving Jerusalem, walking seven miles or so to Emmaus, a little village outside of Jerusalem, and they're really depressed. They'd been in Jerusalem over the weekend. They, They perhaps witnessed Jesus being crucified. And um, they're aware that he's been laid in a tomb He's dead. The one that they thought was the Messiah is now lying stone cold dead in a tomb. And as they kind of trudge out of Jerusalem on the Sunday, 
back to the village of Emmaus. They're very miserable. And a stranger comes alongside them. And he says to them, What are you talking about as you're walking along the road? It says in verse 17, They stood still, their faces downcast. Absolutely incredulous that this stranger doesn't know what's been going on. Are you only a visitor to Jerusalem? Do you not know the things that have happened in these days? And the stranger says, what things? About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied, he was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. Some of the women have been to the tomb this morning but didn't find his body. They, told, they came and told us they'd seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Some of our companions went to the tomb. They found it just as the women said but him they did not see. The stranger is Jesus. And he says to them, how foolish you are. And how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And it says there in verse 27 that Jesus, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Can you see what that means? Who does Jesus appeal to? Jesus takes them on a Bible study, beginning in Genesis. He goes all the way through the Old Testament as they're walking. What a Bible study. That must have been seven miles on the road. And Jesus is effectively saying, it's all about me. It's all about Jesus. The Messiah would come and suffer and die and rise again and ascend to glory where he'd come from. When they got to the house... Jesus, they don't recognise him. Jesus, he, he sort of feigns to carry on. And they say, no, 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 you must come in, come in, come and have. And as Jesus breaks bread, they recognise him. And as soon as they recognise him, he disappears. And they said, we're not our hearts burning within us while he talked with them on the road. Their hope is rekindled. Their excitement begins to bubble. They begin, it begins to dawn on them that Jesus has fulfilled everything that the Old Testament has been talking about. And that having trudged seven miles one way, they put their trainers back on and they run all the way back to Jerusalem. Great excitement. They've seen him. When they got to uh, Jerusalem, they found the other disciples and others with them assembled together. We don't know where. And they, you can imagine the scene, can't you? Them bursting into the room, let us in, let us in. It's true, it's true. We've seen him. The Lord has risen. The two told what had happened on the way. And while they were still talking about this, Jesus himself appears to the whole group. They've done 14 miles. 14 miles and then Jesus appears to all of them the first thing he says is peace be with you and there it says they're startled and frightened thinking they saw a ghost Jesus asked for some food 
to prove to them that he's not a specter or a ghost, that he's a physical body, he's, he's physically raised from the dead. And then he says in verse 44, this is what Ben read to us. Here he is with the disciples. Jesus says, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets and the Psalms. That is a way of saying the whole Bible. The law of Moses, the prophets and the Psalms. The whole of the Old Testament. Can you see what Jesus is saying there? I've been with you for three years and all the way through that time I've been telling you that everything that I'm doing fulfills what was written in the Old Testament. This is what I've been saying to you all along. Do you still not get it? Just, um, I was looking for some evidence of that. Just go back with me to Luke, just flip back a few pages to Luke chapter 18. And um, Jesus had been doing this all along. Here's one example. Uh, Luke chapter 18, verse 31. Jesus took the twelve aside and told them, We're going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. He will be turned over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, insult him, spit on him, flog him and kill him. And on the third day, he will rise again. The disciples did not understand any of this. Its meaning was hidden from them and they did not know what he was talking about. There's one example. Jesus consistently all the way through his ministry, was authenticating his identity on the basis of what the Old Testament said about him before he came. You see that? What's really interesting about that is that somehow, like the two on the road to Emmaus, they just can't quite see it. Their eyes are kind of veiled. There's a blindness there. And so what we find then in verse 45 is that Jesus opens their minds so that they can see and understand what the scriptures have been saying the whole Jesus clearly felt that the whole of the Old Testament was all about him and he had to reveal it supernaturally to them to help them to see it. That's what we learn there from Luke. I think the other thing that I wanted you to notice here is that in verse 46, uh, Luke says that Jesus told them, this is what is written, this is in the Old Testament, that Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day and repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. In other words, the mission of Jesus is a global mission. There's just a few of them here in this room. 
And Jesus is giving them a context. He's authenticating his identity with them. I am the Messiah. I'm, I'm the one who was promised in the Old Testament. And I've come into the world because I want the whole world to know forgiveness of sins. You're going to be my witnesses. I'm now sending you into the world. More than that, I'm going to clothe you with power in the Holy Spirit for you to go into the world and witness to what you now know. The mission of Jesus, their mission, was a global mission. And clearly, the resurrection and ascension of Jesus are crucial to this. This is God's supernatural intervention in the world. I love the uh, bit at the end of Luke there, and we, we've talked about this before. When, when Jesus leads them out to, to Bethany, and um, Jesus lifts up his hands and blesses them. There they are as a group on the mountain there, the Mount of Olives, and um, Jesus is taken up before them. And the very last image of Jesus that they have in their mind's eye is him returning to heaven with his hands raised in blessing over their, their little band, fishermen, tax collectors. And Jesus is raised to heaven with his arms in the air, blessing them. It's very significant at the end of Luke that it says they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. I've said to you before, normally when you part, it's sad. And I, I remember with Jane when I was a student, I used to go to Liverpool on the train and I'd always wag the Monday because I wanted to stay in Liverpool. I've only got one lecture. I'll go back tomorrow. I can ask my friends when I get... It's a terrible thing to do, but I wanted to stay. And parting... There was, it wasn't the case that I jumped on the train with great joy. I wanted to stay. But the disciples say Jesus is taken from them and yet they skip back to Jerusalem. Why is that? Because they now know that their friend and Lord and Saviour is on the very throne of the whole universe. He is more important. He's kind of leapfrogged Pilate and Caesar and every other human ruler. And they go back to Jerusalem knowing that their Lord and Saviour friend is now on the throne. The resurrection and ascension are crucial. Jesus is now directing his global mission from heaven's headquarters and sending them out, as he said, like sheep among wolves, to declare his glory to the world. Jesus authenticates his ministry by appealing to the Old Testament. What about the disciples then? Here we go. The apostles authenticate their ministry in exactly the same way. When the disciples began to preach Jesus, what did they appeal to? They do exactly what Jesus did and they appeal to the Old Testament. I was doing a little survey of Matthew's Gospel. Maybe um, maybe we can... Oh, you don't need to, but it, Matthew, all the way through Matthew, it's really interesting that Matthew says 
that I, I counted, I think, nearly 20 times in Matthew, where Matthew says, this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. Matthew chapter 1, verse 22, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet in Isaiah chapter 7. Right in, in, in chapter 2, um, they, they end up going to Egypt. And uh, in verse 15, Matthew says, And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. Verse 17, Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. All the way through Matthew's Gospel, you could, you, maybe that's some homework for you to do. The, the, the Gospels always appealed, Jesus is who he claimed to be, because he fulfilled what the prophets had predicted. What about the first... Oh, there we go, Matthew's Gospels. What about the same as an Acts? You remember Peter? I mean, Peter's an interesting character, isn't he? Peter, denied, when Jesus was on trial, he denied he even knew Jesus to a servant girl, warming their hands by the fire. I never knew him. It says he called down curses. He swearing and shouting. I never knew him. Six or seven weeks later, the Holy Spirit is poured out and they spill out into the street nine o'clock in the morning and there's people there from all nationalities there's a massive feast going on in Jerusalem and the people say what's up with these guys are they drunk and Peter goes no we're not drunk it's only nine o'clock in the morning who's drunk at nine o'clock in the morning no do you know what he said the first thing he says is this is to fulfil what was spoken by the prophet Joel. That's how he begins his sermon. Straight in there. He doesn't talk about himself or anything. The first thing he says is, this is a fulfilment of the Old Testament. And you can go all the way through that sermon in Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 3, we were thinking about the communion on Wednesday. Uh, Peter and John go to Jerusalem and they heal a lame man. This time, the people don't think they're drunk. They think they're divine. Let's, let, these men are gods and Peter has to say no, 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 no we're not gods we haven't done this by our power God has intervened supernaturally this is by the power of Jesus who you crucified and God has raised from the dead and where does he go to authenticate all of that? the Old Testament all the way through chapter 3 and chapter 4 Peter is appealing to the Old Testament he actually says all the prophets beginning with Samuel all the way through they're all pointing to Jesus who you killed, but God raised from the dead. Was it just Peter? Well, Paul. Well, let's just turn to uh, the book of Acts as well. Acts chapter uh, 14. I, I, I can't pick out enough here. Sorry, th chapter 13. Where does Paul go? This is the very first sermon we have recorded that Paul gives. He goes to uh, this place called Antioch. And in Acts chapter 13, starting from verse 16, all the way through, he's speaking about the Old Testament. All the way through, He's quoting David. He quotes uh, about Abraham. He's, he's establishing 
the fact that Jesus is the Christ from the Old Testament. This is what the prophets have said. Verse 32, we tell you the good news, what God promised our fathers, he has fulfilled for us their children by raising up Jesus, as it is written in the Psalms, and so on and so on, all the time, he's building up this idea that the Old Testament authenticates his ministry. We, we could go to loads of places, I just wanted to show you one more, we did look at this one before when we went through 1 Thessalonians, but look at... Um, Acts chapter 17, just over the page, and verse 2. Paul, as his custom was, went into the synagogue. And on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that the Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead. How did he authenticate his ministry? By proving that Jesus was who he claimed to be, and did what he did because the Old Testament promised that. That was how he authenticated his ministry. And the rest of the New Testament, many of Paul's letters and, and, and the other letters in the New Testament appeal to the Old Testament. The book of Hebrews, it's all about the Old Testament being a shadow and Jesus being the reality. The book of Galatians, it all talks about circumcision and the law in the Old Testament how Jesus is the reality that kind of transcends all of that in the gospel Jesus authenticated his identity and the apostles authenticate their ministry based on the prophets let me um, let me just uh, talk about God's intervention in the world then I want to just say five things very quickly about God's intervention and hopefully you'll see some patterns here. I think one of the really interesting things in the Bible is that when God intervenes in history, it's always personal. God calls people. And it's interesting this, you know, you, you can go right back to Abraham. God appeared to Abraham when he was a pagan man. And called him by name. The reason that God calls people by name is because he's personal. I think as Christian believers we can take this for granted, but we live in a culture that is very, very obsessed in a way with spirituality. You know, people wonder, you know, is there a God? Who is God? Is God in nature? And is, is there a little bit of God in all of us? And the idea is that God is kind of this vague force. That I'm sure there's something there. The interesting thing about God's supernatural intervention in the world is that he is not a thing. He's not a, I've said this before, he's not an ology or an ism. God is a living, personal being. And when he intervenes in his world... It's always personal. He called Abraham. He called Moses. All the way through the Old Testament, he's calling people. Ultimately, Jesus comes into the world. Why? Because he's personal. He's not a force. 
He's a living individual. What does he say? He goes to the disciples and he says, follow me. He calls them. He's personal. He wants to engage with them. I think the second thing we could say about God's intervention in the world is not just that it's personal, but it is always radical in this sense. We just alluded to Abraham calling, God calling Abraham. Sometimes people who are secular will say, you know, when God, is, you know, they've dreamt it up, you know. What, what, what they've done is they've had an emotional experience and they've projected somehow that that is God. And really, it's just an emotional experience that they've had. And there is no possibility of God intervening in people's lives. The reason that this second point is so important is that when God intervenes in people's lives, it's never natural. When God intervenes, he always changes the natural dynamic. It's always counter-cultural. Abraham was a pagan man. There were all sorts of people who lived in his culture who felt that God had compelled them to do things. But they were pagan gods. They were polytheistic. Gods of all different kinds of things. And then God comes to Abraham and says, Abraham, I'm calling you. I am the living God. And it doesn't reinforce his preconceived ideas. It actually caused him to leave behind what he thought was true and move in a different direction. When God intervenes in people's lives, there's always something radical about that. He's not confirming our wishful thinking, but calling us to leave something behind and go somewhere with him. That's radical. That's countercultural. And, it, and it, in a way, it's an evidence that it isn't a sense of wishful thinking. There are many people who've become Christians who can testify to the fact that if God had not intervened in their life, they wouldn't be who they were. Their life has been turned upside down completely. Something has happened to them from outside of themselves. Paul himself on the Damascus Road, he was going to Damascus to kill Christians, came home trying to preach to people so they would become Christians. That isn't his wishful thinking being confirmed by some emotional experience. That is God personally meeting him, encountering him, and radically changing his life. The third thing I want to say about God's intervention is this. God always in his interventions in the world is seeking to establish community. That's really important. God is personal and relational, but when God calls people to himself, he also calls them into community. How true is this in the Old Testament? God called Abraham. He promised Abraham that the whole world would be blessed through him. And ultimately from Abraham a nation's born. And this is radical and personal. God caused the nation of Israel out of all the other nations of the world. And he says to them, I don't want you to be like them. You are my people. And I'm your God. And I'm going to give you my laws. My promises. And you're going to live together as a holy community. That's really interesting, isn't it? The fourth thing that is true is that when God intervenes in history and a culture, a community is established, it's always a struggle. When you think about the Old Testament, they haven't been in the wilderness ten minutes. Moses is on the mountain 
and they, he comes down and they've decided to melt all their gold down to worship a golden calf all the way through the Old Testament God calls them to himself and to one another and all the way through they consistently fail to live up to what God has called them to it's always a struggle it's a call to struggle against our natural tendency to move away from God and that's been true in the Old Testament it's true in the New Testament it's true in our own lives and the fifth thing is and I'm fascinated by this when God intervenes it all, there's always a sense in which God is making sense of the past giving the present purpose and giving a glimpse of what the future will be like when God intervenes in people's lives history becomes clear I suppose when God called Abraham God revealed himself to him as the creator so when Abraham looks to the past and thinks wow God is the creator the living God and now he's called me and I'm going to go somewhere suddenly his life has a new dynamic in it the past makes sense the present has a purpose and the future although not completely clear is filled with hope when God intervened in the life of his people Israel through Moses God calls Moses to go to Pharaoh and suddenly this nation understand yeah we are God's people we're, we're the product of the promises that God gave to Abraham and now God's rescuing us now and he's taken us to the promised land and there's a future can you see that? When God intervenes in history, it always makes sense of the past, gives the present purpose, and fills the future with hope. Well, with that, we're right back where we started, aren't we? God has intervened supernaturally in history, ultimately in the person of Jesus. It is personal. Jesus comes, calling people to himself. It is radical. He calls them to leave. He calls them out of this world to himself. He's establishing a community of people who are following him. It's always a struggle. It isn't a hopeless, helpless struggle. Because God, Peter said last week, God has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him. But when God intervenes, it is always making sense of the past, giving the present purpose and the future hope. And isn't that true in Jesus? When Jesus comes, the whole of the Old Testament suddenly becomes clear. Jesus isn't a flash in the pan, but he is in that long line of God's supernatural interventions in history. I suppose well, when, when I think of um, the, that diagram that we had there the apostles and the, and the prophets and Jesus coming the generosity of God the intervention of God the question that we've got to ask and as we think about Christmas has God intervenes in the world the generosity of heaven floods into this world in the person of Jesus and the, que the question surely is has God intervened 
in your own personal life. Personally, radically, grafting you into community, calling you to struggle against all that's natural in his strength and power. And ultimately, as God intervened in your life to make sense of your past, give your present purpose, and give you a hope for the future. The thing that really comes across in the book of Acts in the New Testament as those first disciples went out into the world, the thing that the whole book really throbs with is, is the risen power of Christ directing them from heaven in the power of his Holy Spirit so that they might know him intimately and so that they might go into a lost world. How does Jesus intervene in the world now supernaturally? He does it through his people reigning from heaven, pouring out his spirit and sending his people into the world to be fruitful and for their community to grow as people are converted and born again and grafted into his family. I don't know what, what sort of images you have in your mind when you think about the Christian life, but the idea that Jesus is on his throne in heaven that's poured out his spirit into our hearts and is building a community of believing people in this sin-spoiled world. Global mission. It's incredible to be part of that story. I think the applications here are that, first of all, it is very clear that God has and does supernaturally intervene both in history and in people's lives. Often people in our modern culture ask for evidence of that. Where's the evidence? Show me the science. Well, the evidence is grounded in history. Those Old Testament prophets, Jesus coming, the disciples witnessing that, and the way that that message has transformed countless people's lives in history over the last 2,000 years. I think the, the other thing to say is not just about the sovereignty of God, but the fact that the story is all about Jesus. The central theme of the whole of the Bible is the coming of Jesus into the world, God's generosity and his intervention. The big story is not about human beings being nice to one another. That's important, but it's a byproduct. It's not the main thing. The main central theme of the Bible is Jesus invading history and the big story is not about what we've done it's about what Jesus has achieved one of the great things that the disciples used to preach I just, I just want to close with two, two points to finish with just by way of challenge one of the great things that the disciples were able to do when they went out with this message is they were able to say Jesus is for you. That's the great thing about being able to preach. Jesus said it to them in Luke 24. Forgiveness will be preached to all nations. In Acts chapter 2, Peter stood up in Jerusalem and he said, 
repent and believe this promise is for you and for all whom the Lord our God will call it's for you he was able to connect what had happened in history with them personally this message is for you I love in Acts chapter 13 there's a great um, there's a great verse there but Paul uh, preaching says brothers children of Abraham and you God fearing Gentiles it is to us that this message of salvation has been sent it is to us verse 32 we tell you the good news what God promised our fathers he's fulfilled for us there was something about this message that yeah, he was talking about something that happened in the past but God was intervening there and then this message from the past is for you now Jesus is yours come and respond to his call I think the other place the second point I just wanted to make as we close is that the whole of that Old Testament history God's supernatural intervention in history has been marked by people resisting God's word one man in the, in the book of Acts who preached touches on this very powerfully Stephen filled with the Holy Spirit it says in the Bible he takes them on a survey in Acts chapter 7 I was reading this this morning in my own quiet time amazingly and, uh, I wasn't going to talk about this but I read it this morning I thought that's quite relevant I might finish with that Acts chapter 7 he takes them all the way through the Old Testament and then he says to them in verse 51 you stiff necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears you are just like your fathers you always resist the Holy Spirit was there ever a prophet your fathers didn't persecute they even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one and now you have murdered and betrayed him you who have received the law that was put into effect through angels but you haven't obeyed it I think the great challenge for us as we think about that foundation and Jesus coming God's intervention God's generosity the real challenge for us is that it's for you and the challenge is don't resist God's spirit don't resist God's generosity don't resist God's supernatural intervention in the world and in your life we need to think about how we stand before God there is right and wrong there is a hell to avoid and a heaven to gain there is a life to be lived and not wasted we need to respond to God's generosity and his intervention for those of us who have encountered God invading not just history but our own lives you know his voice, his word, his truth when you hear the gospel you're saying amen in your heart I do believe in Jesus the spirit of God has been at work in your heart grafting you into his family and into community well surely our mission 
Our mission as a church is not just to know Jesus, but to go and make him known to other people who don't yet know him. And to do that as his witnesses. The great thing in the book of Acts is it's all about knowing and going. It's all about worshipping and witnessing. And should that not sum up our church as we move into a new year, that we worship Jesus and witness to him, to others. Well, I hope our mission as a church is to know him and to go and make him known. Well, I hope uh, as we thought about the generosity of God and his intervention in the world, that it's helpful. I hope that that foundation for the gospel encourages you. And I hope that you sense that you are part of a great story. This is not a small thing, but a global thing. And uh, I hope that's really helpful and useful to you all.